Hello and welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. I'm John Koo and in this series I'm joined by a range of sustainability and built environment experts to explore how we can best design our way out of a climate crisis. For the last eight years my role at Interface has seen me meet and collaborate with leading thinkers and doers and in this podcast I get to share these conversations with you. Today's guest is renowned architect Michael Pauling. Michael is the founder of Exploration Architecture and also a co-founder for Architects Declare. He was part of the team that designed the Eden Project in Cornwall, creating those iconic biomes. He's an authority on regenerative design, biomimicry and the circular economy. And his TED talk on using nature's genius in architecture is one of my faves and has over 2 million views. He's also the author of the bestseller, Biomimicry in Architecture. We'll be exploring biomimicry, regenerative design, and how the architecture world is responding to a climate emergency. Plus, we'll delve into Architects Declare, its origins, how its first year's gone, and what's coming next. What action the design community can and must take. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. How are you and where are you? Hi, John. Well, thanks very much for involving me. I, I'm very well, thanks. And I'm sitting in North London with a view out towards houses and trees. Beautiful. And um, here's a bit of a curveball for you. 2020 has obviously been a, a tricky and difficult year for many. But if you had to sum up what it's taught you, what would you say that 2020 has taught you? Hmm. Well, I mean, what what I hope we kind of all take from 2020 is that it's the year when the idea of human exceptionalism kind of came to an end. You know, the idea that um, somehow we can exist beyond the rules of physics and outside the realm of biology. So I sincerely hope that this will mark the end of that uh, mindset and the start of a of a, a much more um, kind of systemic holistic view of, of how we fit into our broader life support systems yeah i kind of think of it a bit like being a mirror and, okay um, I, I was just thinking we're recording this in mid-september and there's been a new documentary by sir david attenborough looking at the extinction it's called extinction the facts and it's mainly focused on the loss of biodiversity. But within that, he also looks at us. He looks at, you know, the potential for an extinction-related event due to, to us. And I'll start off with a little quote that he said there and just see where it leads us, which is, for Attenborough, he's saying that this year has shown us the vulnerability of our societies. And he's, he questions whether we'll take this opportunity to change our our course. So kind of reflecting on that, what do you think in terms of our, our chances of taking that opportunity? It's really tr- uh, tricky to know. As I'm sure you remember at the start of the, the lockdown, there were lots of very thoughtful pieces written about how this could change everything. And this is an opportunity to really bring about system change. And then for the last sort of three months, it's all gone rather quiet. And I think people are wondering how the government is is going to react. And uh, my guess is they don't have the courage to do what's necessary unless they're forced to do it by the general public 
and a pretty broad coalition of industry and professions. And we'll look a little bit more at what industry are doing, what architects declare have been doing a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to, to think about just at that point, what, you know, us as kind of individuals, us as a society, um, I guess lockdown, a lot of people have reconnected with, with nature. They've seen the world in a different way. They've seen the impact of there being less traffic. Um, so they're aware of change going on. But I guess that's a big question. Will we be able to turn this awareness into real action? Will we be able to put the right pressure on the right people to draw that that draw that change? Yeah, I mean, one thing we've definitely seen is that governments can take bold action and they can be guided by the science when they want to be. Um, and we've also seen that people are prepared to change social norms and ways of behaving really quite quickly um, out of respect for their fellow people. So, you know, there's there's plenty to, to draw out of this that is optimistic, but exactly what the lasting um, effects of this will be is, is, is still difficult to know. On the positive side, I, I did like the release of the, the UK's Climate Assembly report last week um, and the kind of recommendations. To me, it was kind of democratising the issue. And I like the fact they took a cross-section of society that wasn't just people that work in sustainability or care about the environment. They really looked at making sure they were being representative of people who might not have thought of it before. But that's that combination of bringing experts and the public together. I think that's a, that was definitely a positive. Did you have any thoughts on that on the Climate Assembly? Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that was very positive. Um and in in some ways, it's 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 really encouraging as a development to, to our overall democracy. We, we've seen various uh, opinion polls showing that uh, young people actually have less faith in parliamentary democracy now than they did ten or twenty years ago, which is quite worrying in a way. And you know, there's even a, a growth in support for the idea that we need kind of strong men uh, leading governments, uh, which is is pretty alarming. But definitely the idea of participatory democracy, where, as you say, you get uh, groups of ordinary citizens and they're um, kind of informed by expert opinion and they make up um, their their minds. I find that's really inspiring and um, great to see that they actually come to, on the whole, very good conclusions. Yeah, one thing we've been picking up through this series is this is certainly not a time of apathy. We've got that younger generation coming through and, and kind of challenging and being really eloquently um, putting their points through on climate change and you know a more inclusive world as well. You've had some experience kind of working with and giving talks at, say, like Extinction Rebellion um, rallies and similar events. Um, how have you found kind of that younger audience, or I might be very ageist, how have you found that general audience of the populace um, kind of reacting? And how, yeah, what's your reflection on on that as someone that's been engaging and speaking? And I mean, yesterday you signed a letter um, in support of um, the need to be able to challenge, which is a very important one. Well, I, I mean, I think... Um... I think young people really see 
just how alarming the, the news is. Uh, and they're getting increasingly fed up with being kind of sold out by um, the older generation. And, you know, I think that there's always been an element to uh, teenagers and, and young people that it's very kind of uh, quick to spot inconsistencies and hypocrisy on, on the part of kind of grown-ups in inverted commas. You know, there's, there is a tendency for, for some people when they get into business to really start sort of shifting uh, their ideals and in some cases abandoning some of their teenage ideals. And so it's really useful to be forced to reflect on that. Um, and and also, I, I think it has made those of us who've been in the environmental movement for a long time, and I mean, I, I consider myself as having been active in sustainability for about 30 years. Um, and it, it's really made us question the way we have tried to bring about change and particularly the way we relate to government. And this is something I know we're going to get on to Architects Declare later, but, but this is something that we've debated quite a lot within Architects Declare. You know, what's what's the right way of engaging with government? And the received wisdom is that what you have to do is you have to knock politely and then you have to present something that makes it very easy for the minister to implement and look good. And <laughs> the trouble with that is that's what people have been doing for 20 or 30 years and have achieved very little. And if you look at Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg, what they've done is metaphorically smash the door down and literally call politicians criminals. And I'm not suggesting that necessarily professionals should adopt exactly the same approach, but I think that they have shown that that has, has been far more effective at shifting the Overton window and for some of the overseas listeners, you may not be familiar with the Overton window. That's that's the kind of frame of what is regarded as acceptable political policy. And essentially anything that's outside that uh, frame, most politicians won't even touch. And for a lot of them, the, the idea of bold action on climate change has been well outside that frame. So I think in April last year, after the Extinction Rebellion events and the um, school strike for climate protests, there was a really substantial shift in the public mood and in the Overton window. I think that's a really interesting point. I think working in business and sustainability, I remember starting out and people would often say, oh, we don't approach government that way, or that's not the way it's it's mm. it's done or you need to go to a lobbyist or and you know some of that is very much true but I, I love that point you make about last year you know the work that Greta Thunberg's been doing to kind of smash those doors into the UN into parliament and make sure she's getting getting heard I think that's I think within the business the design community a lot of the listeners here we have to question ourselves about whether we're using the most effective means and I, I also quite like it because Within Interface's own journey, one of the things I remember was our founder, Ray Anderson, having the willingness when challenged by um, the science and when challenged by um, people such as Paul Hawke and the ecologist to go, you know, if industry doesn't change its ways, then we will be considered criminals for not having taken action. Mm. Well, I, I remember seeing a video of that that um, spear in the chest speech, as as Ray Anderson called it, and it was it was pretty powerful stuff, you know, and it it, it showed a great deal of humility and also made a lot of people in the audience ask some pretty searching questions of themselves. And, and when the 
camera scans over the audience, you, you can see some of them looking pretty uncomfortable, but in a good way, I would say. Yeah, it's funny because we, I mean, we, we were talking to Manish Datta um, on an earlier episode of this this podcast, and he was reflecting on how he'd sat next to Ray and been moved by him. And I think, and he probably felt a little bit uncomfortable and was challenged to do to do more. And I think every time that Greta gives a speech, or every time that anyone, whatever any listener here, challenges um, that status quo or asks a question such as, you know, what is your business or what is your government doing on climate change? Um, it, it may make people uncomfortable, but it's not being uncomfortable itself is not a bad thing. It mm. allows you to kind of, as long as you don't take it too defensively, it allows you to kind of have a different viewpoint to step back and see whether you are doing the right stuff and if equally whether when you say you're going to do something you're actually implementing it having the impact that you should be having absolutely and i think it um raises really interesting questions about our individual agency you know our capacity to bring about change and i've certainly seen a lot of agency minimization over the last few decades where a lot of professionals they get they they try to to bring about change um, and they try to implement sustainability on their projects, but then they get to an obstacle where they feel they can no longer push past that, and and that's it. That, that's as far as they're willing to go. And the argument is, well, you know, I've done everything I can. And where we are now in a planetary emergency, I think we we all have to question how do we overcome those obstacles. It's not. It's no longer enough to just say, "Okay, well, that's that's the the limit of my agency," because it's just too convenient. So, Michael, um, you're a renowned expert within biomimicry. Um, could you tell us a little bit for those that might have joined the audience and don't know about biomimicry, what it what it is? Yeah, sure. So the the essence of biomimicry is about looking to the living world for solutions um, and innovations that suit human needs. And um, the the reality is that um, in the the living world, you can find some truly amazing, uh, truly amazing um, adaptations to to very specific challenges. And, and some of the solutions that have emerged through this long process of evolution are ones that we can learn from and, and use to to create buildings and um, a lot of other innovations as well uh, that are far more energy efficient, far more resource efficient, that are regenerative to their um, uh, surroundings and, and so on. So it's kind of, it's looking for that inspiration in terms of nature, not just in its aesthetic, but how it kind of operates. Um, in relation to that, did, did architecture bring you toward nature? Or did nature bring you towards architecture? Or was it something in between? I think the uh, nature came first, actually. Um, so as a child, I, I was very interested in nature. Uh, I loved biology at school. Some of my happiest memories as a young teenager were, were snorkeling in, in coral reefs and, and so on. Um, but I, I couldn't see the creative side to biology at that point, which is why I went off to study architecture. And then the, the, the big opportunity for me really was when I joined Grimshaw to work on the Eden project. And then the next 
major step was when I went on a, a short intensive course at Schumacher College that was taught by Amory Lovins and Janine Benyus, which was absolutely phenomenal. And that's when I realized that biomimicry was a much broader subject. Because I think, you know, most architects have had a little sprinkling of biomimicry in their courses, you know, sometimes a little bit of um, learning from termite mounds and spiders' webs, but it tends to be a bit superficial. And, and so often architects have this um, sort of persistent view of biomimicry as, as a bit superficial. But but actually, when you look into it, you realize that it's a, a much more profound discipline with solutions to a whole range of challenges, you know, not just efficient structures, but very efficient processes. And the, the, the really big and largely untapped opportunity at the moment is transforming our cities so that they work like ecosystems in, in closed loop, um, highly productive, uh, zero waste ways that run entirely on solar energy. And how far away are we at the moment from going from that conceptual stage to actually bringing some of those ideas into to reality? And I guess within that, within the UK, are we ahead of the game or are we behind some of the great stuff that's happening around the world? Yeah, <laughs> the reason for the chuckle and the, 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 the perhaps slight sense of weariness is that I thought we were right on the cusp of this about kind of 15 years ago. Um, and and that's partly why I decided to set up my company Exploration so that I could focus on biomimicry. And I'm still amazed that it's taken us quite as long as this to, to really see the potential of biomimicry. And are you familiar with the Gartner Hype Cycle? Have you come across that? A little bit, but do you want to describe it for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So um, it's a hypothesis that most new ideas follow a certain trajectory. So there's, there's the start of it is an innovation trigger, often an event or a person that champions a new idea. People get more and more excited about it. And so on this trajectory, the, the kind of level of interest goes up and up and up until it reaches peak hype, uh, which is also called the peak of inflated expectations. And then um, often uh, some of the same writers and journalists that were getting very excited about it now start writing about how it's failed to live up to its expectations. And then it drops down to the trough of disillusionment. And then eventually it gets out of that and it, it slowly climbs up uh, to what they call it, um, the slope of enlightenment and basically widespread adoption. And I think the peak of inflated expectations on biomimicry was probably around the time that Janine Benyus did her talk. And that's no criticism of her, of her talk. It was an excellent talk. It, it, if anything, it's more of a criticism of the the way that the media tend to get a bit overexcited about ideas. But the thing to remember is that while this uh, Gartner hype cycle is going on, the sort of calmer, more methodical types, the scientists and the engineers, are, are, steadily working away on the evidence base. And if you look at the number of uh, academic papers that have been published on biomimicry over the last 15 to 20 years, it's on a very steady upward trajectory. And now we're getting to the point where some, some really big influential thinkers, you know, like Kate Rayworth, the economist, economist uh, like Roman Krasnarek, the um, public philosopher who's written a book called The Good Ancestor, more and more people now are realizing the the potential of biomimicry and, and they're really starting to, to challenge it. So I do think people are now going to in, increasingly get on board with it. 
and and see that it's actually a, an, an essential part of reaching the highest levels of regenerative design. I think I've been quite fortunate, and, and my colleagues at Interface are, because we've worked with Dr. Janine Benyus. Um, she's who inspired us to create kind of random tile design in our um, products by just taking our designers out to the forest and saying, how would nature design design a floor? But one thing I would say about biomimicry is that whenever you hear yourself talk or you hear Janine talk or Amory Lovins talk, it captivates, well, it captures and captivates the audience every time because there's this innate connection, I think, between humans and the natural surroundings. And mm. I, I wonder if 2020 is going to help us out here because a lot of people have found themselves reconnecting with nature, especially their local environment, because they can't fly somewhere. That you know, they're you know, people are rushing to go wild swimming or people are rushing to to go to forests that they just drove by in the past. And I just wonder if there's something to help um get out of the trough of disillusionment. Yeah. And into that, you know, kind of that enlightenment climb um that sounds much more helpful and and maybe this will be a little a little kickstart for people to to realize its potential yes i i think you're right i think a lot of people have reconnected with nature i think there's also some very interesting work going on um in the world of medicine actually uh, with the planetary health initiative so i i wouldn't claim to be a, a big authority on this but i think this was launched by the lancet and um, the idea with the Planetary Health Initiative is that we've realized that our health is in, inextricably linked to the health of the broader planet. You know, we, we depend on the rest of the living world, literally, for our life support systems, for, for our oxygen, our water, our food, and, and so on. And in a way, um, the, the huge gains we've seen in health over the last hundred years are a bit like one of those sort of pyramid or Ponzi investment schemes, um, which appear to be uh, creating massive benefits, but at the expense of drawing down on the the sort of reserves. And so we've we've definitely seen amazing increases in, in health over the last hundred years, a bit longer um, in terms of lifespans and tackling um, terrible diseases and, and, and so on. But what's predicted now is that unless we really uh, tackle climate change and biodiversity loss, it could set us back literally 50 years in terms of, of global health. And what I've read about the Planetary Health Initiative, I think is in, extremely promising because it, it, it's a, an example of a much more holistic approach. You know, it shows how these things are connected and, and that nature is not just some separate thing that we can protect by having a few nature reserves here and there. It, it's absolutely essential to, to our future quality of life. And, and if we don't address the, the kind of challenges that David Attenborough is now talking about much more directly and eloquently, then we're simply not going to provide ongoing health improvements. In fact, health health gains could go into dramatic reverse. I think those links are very starkly drawn. I think Paul Pullman was reflecting in an interview a couple of weeks ago and saying you can't have healthy people on an unhealthy planet and you know this year's really shown shown that now if we think about all the talk around the green recovery what would you say the role is of biomimicry 
for the architecture and design community when it comes to a green recovery? Where do we where do we start off, or where do we head in that direction? Well, I've increasingly been framing it uh, within the the big transformation that we need to bring about from sustainable design to regenerative design, because I think that's the sort of clearest way of getting it across. And the the way I would describe that shift is that sustainability has too often been about mitigating negatives. And as Bill McDonough puts it rather well, he said, if, if you get to 100% sustainable, all you've done is make it 100% less bad. And the vast majority of what we do at the moment as, as a society, um, in terms of our economies, our industry, our buildings, are well short of 100% less bad. Uh, and that means that what we've been calling sustainable is, is still part of a degenerative system. And what we need to do is get above that line of neutrality into the realms of regenerative design, where everything we do should be striving to have a positive impact, restoring ecosystems, uh, rebuilding um, nature, um, enhancing human well-being, and so on. And I remember the, the kind of debates that we had like 25, 30 years ago about what's the ultimate in sustainability. And now I think there's a really interesting debate to be had about what is the ultimate in regenerative design. And within that, I'm convinced that biomimicry can play a, a huge part because it is a systemic approach. And it's also an approach that can offer massive increases in resource efficiency by, by learning from solutions that have been refined over such a long period of time. So when looking at this concept of it no longer being enough just to be sustainable and to do less bad, we need to find ways to do more good and biomimicry is a route for that. Within the world of architecture, and um, when it comes to biomimicry and this, this kind of emerging concept of regenerative design, um, what are the kind of key trends or examples that you're seeing at the moment, Michael? Well, um, I, I'm not sure whether to answer that in a sort of deeply philosophical way or a much more practical way maybe i do a bit of both <laughs> so there's a um, a philosopher that i've been getting more and more interested in called freya matthews uh, she's based in australia and she's she's written an excellent couple of essays about uh, the deeper philosophy of biomimicry and uh, she mentions uh, Bill McDonough's idea about how if if you're a manufacturer making the making a hair gel, what you should do is you should think about the river that that hair gel ends up in and ask, what does the river want from the hair gel? And Freya Matthews says that's that's pretty good, but she would encourage to architects and designers to, to go a step further and ask what does nature want us to want? And that, what that, the implication of that is that we need to look much more carefully at the locations that, that we're designing for. We need to develop a, a much broader and deeper understanding of place. Now, conventionally, architects, I think, have been pretty good at understanding a cultural uh, history of place. They've been less good at understanding an ecological um, idea of place. And the ones that understand 
an ecological idea of place tend not to be the same architects as as those with a good cultural understanding of place. And what we really need to do urgently is is to bring those those two together so that we've got a cultural and an ecological understanding of place. And and that can start to inform how we organize things at, a, at the most strategic level so that we can uh, create closed loop ecosystem models. And then from that systemic approach, that leads to some of the more detailed decisions about what the right materials are to use. And for buildings to be regenerative when it comes to selecting the materials, well, those materials ideally should be doing something positive. They should be made from atmospheric carbon. And you know, timber is is the most obvious example of of that, but it's not the only one. You know, there there are increasingly products going onto the market now that that are made um, from atmospheric carbon, either through biological processes or sort of quasi geological processes. And that's the kind of thing that we need to do more of. And and it's something that we've been uh, exploring quite a lot at Exploration, uh, particularly using. 3D printing so that we can get closer to the kind of efficient complexity that you see in biological structures. So the tables that we designed for our exhibition at the Architecture Foundation, also exhibited at the Interface Showroom, uh, those tables were made from a biologically derived polymer and they were designed using um, software based on tree and bone growth patterns. So we were striving to get as close as possible to a kind of perfect structure. And by perfect structure, I mean one that uses an absolute minimum of materials that puts those materials exactly where they need to be to resist the forces imposed on that. And that inevitably leads to, to very organic looking structural forms. And those tables were incredibly lightweight. They They occupied one thousandth of the volume of a solid plinth of, of that sort of height and, and plan form, if that makes sense. So that gives a sense of, of the level of efficiency that we can achieve. So striving for biologically inspired structures and using biologically derived materials that take carbon out of the atmosphere. Those, those are two very important strands to regenerative design, I would argue. Yeah, they, they, were, they were really beautiful as well. But I, I know that the beauty was also in the choice of materials using less materials, some of those principles in the circular economy, but equally this issue of, of rethinking carbon as more of a, a building block, not mm. just seeing carbon emissions as a, an issue. It's something that we're, you know, at Interface we're, we're looking at as well. Um, and I also see some great stuff around some cladding that some guys in Germany are experimenting with um, using kind of atmospheric carbon mm. But I guess part of that means we need to get the architectural world and the construction world thinking more around embodied carbon, because up to now, um, when I think of all the standards, everyone's really focusing on, on on operational carbon and energy. And even when I look at some of the great work that Sonetta have been doing with their powerhouse work in Norway, it's always about being able to make something more energy positive. So this idea of actually looking at materials looking at the building blocks and finding a way for them to be regenerative is one that I think is very inspiring for all manufacturers, but also for designers. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I think there's actually now quite a quite a healthy discussion about embodied carbon um, amongst the architects and engineers. Um, I, I still think there's a lot more that we could learn from biological materials yeah, along the lines of 
shape optimization, hierarchy, self-repair, environmentally influenced forms, um, and so on. And if I could plug my book, Biomimicry and Architecture, there's there's a, a whole chapter about materials there. And so I think many of the things that we can learn from nature would help us make structures and, and, and find ways of using materials that are inherently much lower in, in terms of embodied carbon because they'll just be using those materials in a much more effective way. And I, going back to the philosophical point, I really like the idea of instead of trying to design around nature, to actually design with it. And just thinking about a lot of coastal communities, like if you're designing in Miami, you spend your time thinking, how do I deal with with floods? But if you designed with nature rather than just design with the outcome of how we've treated nature, that would be a much more effective way of doing things. Mm. There are some people who argue, and I think very convincingly, that um, we're only really going to make progress with addressing the, the planetary emergency if we rethink the whole relationship that we have with the rest of the living world. And one of my favorite books that I've read recently is The Patterning Instinct by Jeremy Lent. And he argues in that that, um, well, he, he kind of traces the the way that humans have viewed nature um, back to its historical roots. And he, he describes the sort of rise of dualism, you know, the idea of humans being separate to nature and separate to various other things. Um, as something that arose in, in ancient Greece. Um, and then, if anything, that view of humans as separate to nature increased um, and reached, in some ways, the, the, its sort of apogee, um, zenith, um, with the philosophy of, of Francis Bacon and René Descartes, um, who described nature as, as like a machine. And essentially, that mechanistic view um, regarded nature as something that, that would ultimately be dominated by humans and that we could treat it as something to be plundered. And what he argues in that book is that that's, that's not just a kind of trivial mindset. That's a mindset that actually influenced a, a lot of human behavior. And he compares that with the mindset that existed in ancient China. And there, the view of uh, the human relationship with nature was very different. There it was seen as um, humans were embedded into a web of systems. And and as a result, we behave rather differently. And the, the example that he gives in the book is a really good one. He contrasts uh, Christopher Columbus with a, a figure called Admiral Zhang. So Christmas, Christopher Columbus set sail with, I think, three pretty scruffy ships and about 80 or 90 sailors and unleashed the, the worst uh, wave of exploitation and um, plundering arguably there's ever been. But a, a near contemporary of his from China, this guy Admiral Zhang, um, he set sail with something like, I think it was like 20,000 sailors in, in a huge armada of vastly superior ships with much better military technology. But they chose not to plunder any of the societies they visited. They visited large parts of Africa, the Middle East, the Pacific Islands, and so on, and actually set up trading relationships with them, uh, with embassies back in uh, Nanjing, which was the capital of China at the time. 
And Jeremy Lin argues persuasively that that difference in, in mindset was largely down to our underlying story or metaphor of, of how we see the, the rest of the living world. And the book builds up to um, where we are now, which is at a kind of um, fork in the road. And one way we could go is towards a techno dystopian future. And a, a lot of the, the people in Silicon Valley seem to be drawing us that way. The idea that uh, humans, are, uh, our destiny is beyond, lies beyond biology. That's what uh, Ray Kurzweil um, said. And that ultimately we have to leave Earth behind and colonize space. And the trouble with that is that that's only going to be possible for a tiny minority of humanity, the, the ultra rich. And for the rest of us, we'll be left fighting over scraps on a trashed biosphere. And a much more positive route that we could take is to pattern a new view of nature and increasingly seeing ourselves as having to integrate everything we do within these complex systems. And that's partly why I'm interested in the Planetary Health Initiative and why I think this is this systemic view is, is a critical part of regenerative design. Ultimately, leading to a state where, where we're striving for a state of co-evolution with nature. So one of the most exciting movements I've seen within the architecture community globally um, in the last year or so is the rise of Architects Declare. And we're privileged, Michael, having you on the call to be talking to one of the co-founders. So I guess let's start at the beginning. How did Architects Declare get started? Well, thank you, first of all, for describing it in such flattering terms. Um, it, it started, actually, the, the way quite a few um, good ideas start uh, as an idea in the pub. So back in early November 2018, I met up with an old friend of mine, Steve Tompkins. He's an extremely successful architect. He's, he's one of the founding partners of Howard Tompkins. And um, he had seen an article I'd written in the RIBA journal about the October 2018 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, which was you know, unprecedented in terms of the, 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 the degree of... Um, concern that was clearly uh, behind um, the report. You know, they were far more forthright than previously, and the future they were predicting was truly alarming. Um, and essentially, they said, you, you've got about 10 years in which to make really dramatic cuts in carbon emissions. Otherwise, uh, we we could well be in the, in the realm of runaway climate change. So, um, Steve and I met up in the pub and we were talking about this rather gloomily because we felt there'd been very little response from the architectural community. And we were talking about where each of us had agency to bring about change. And we hatched this plan to get um, a group of Sterling Prize winners to make a joint declaration. Uh, now, for those of you who don't know, the Sterling Prize is, is an annual award. It's probably the most prestigious architecture award in the UK, given for the best building uh, completed that year. And Steve ha had been a, a recent uh, recipient of that. So as time went on, um, uh, Steve did most of, of this um, negotiating with the, the other Sterling Prize winners. And it, it 
soon became clear that the way to badge this was as a declaration of, of climate and biodiversity emergency because of the, a lot of the local authorities were declaring a climate emergency and so on. So we launched this with the, all 13 of the UK previous winners of the Sterling Prize. And we launched it at the end of May uh, 2019. And we thought that we would probably have to really work like mad to get like another 50 firms signed up so that we could then go to the Royal Institute of British Architects and encourage them to declare an emergency. And we were absolutely overwhelmed by how positive the response was. We had 200 firms signing up in the first two days. And since then, it has grown to 23 countries. We've got over 5,000 companies signed up. And we've also spread it across disciplines. Um, We had um, kind of movers and shakers from other parts of the construction industry, structural engineers, M&E engineers, project managers, um, all keen to do something equivalent in, in their realm. And so we, when we um, lodged the domain name for Architects Declare, we also secured the domain name for Construction Declares. And so now under this broader banner of Construction Declares, uh, we've got more and more disciplines in more and more countries uh, declaring an emergency. And um, I mean, I can come on to, to tell you a bit more about our theory of change, if you like. But I mean, just one of the sort of most obvious benefits of this is that increasingly we're finding projects in which the, the whole design team and the client and the local authority are all declarers of a climate emergency. And that's something you can bring up in, in a meeting and say, look, surely all of us working together, we can raise the level of ambition on this project. But the, the sort of broader aim um, is, is really about building a, a, a broad coalition so we can bring about a kind of tipping point um, because we're in a weird situation at the moment where a lot of the solutions exist. You know, a lot of the solutions that myself and others have been exploring in biomimicry, these exist, but it's very difficult to get them implemented because the, the overall economic conditions aren't right. Um, there's a general view that some of these more adventurous approaches are too um, too innovative, too risky, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's only really by bringing about a tipping point that we're going to be able to make a series of, of paradigm shifts. So the kind of shifts I, I'm talking about are the shift from sustainable to regenerative that we've already discussed, the shift in the way we view the, the rest of the, the living world, uh, a shift uh, from a linear uh, extractive way of using resources to a, a closed loop um, model. And and actually, at the same time as um, we launched Architects Declare, there was one other initiative that I um, was, was working on, and, and that's a new book, uh, which is co-authored with um, someone called Sarah Ichioka. Sarah used to be the curator of the Architecture Foundation, and, and it was Sarah that commissioned us to, to put on our exhibition, Designing with Nature. So she and I are, are writing a book now. We've just uh, signed a book deal, which is really uh, great news. And the working title is Design Paradigms for a Planetary Emergency. And each chapter is going to be describing a major paradigm shift that we need to, to bring about if, if we're really to address the planetary emergency. I was going to say congratulations on the, the book deal. Thank you. <laughs> with a, another one to, for me to add to the lists. Um, one thing I was going to ask around Architects Declare is 
that ripple effect that was had in the last year are you how can you best kind of take that take the declaration to make sure that that's becoming action it's becoming impact it's a really i'll make i make it sound really easy it's not a really easy thing to do at all but how have you found that first year or what lessons Mm. have you guys learned about turning the declaration from you know something that swept around the world into what it what it's going to mean day to day and strategically in terms of action yeah so um I think initially with Architects Declare, we were a bit overwhelmed by the response. So a lot of the first six months was kind of firefighting because we were doing all of this using pro bono time. Um, And we quickly built up a a steering group and all of us have been working on this. So it took us a little while to organize ourselves and also to... uh, kind of clarify what our mandate is. We, we carried out a, a survey of our signatories and we also had a big gathering in November last year at the Battersea Arts Centre. And we wanted to make sure that we had a broad agreement from the people that signed up to this where we should take this. And in January, we had a, a workshop with some consultants from the New Economics Foundation about theories of change. And I... I wasn't actually aware of of just how well developed that is as a sort of methodology. I mean, a bit like a sort of business plan, you know, one level, it's just two words that mean one thing, but, but I think everyone's broadly familiar with what a business business plan should contain. There's a sort of certain formula and a certain expectation about it. And actually the people who've been working on theories of change, it's a similar situation. You know, there there are certain recognized formats and things that you need to do. And so that was very helpful for us in in formulating how we were going to try and bring about the kind of change that we wanted. And we concluded that there are at least three main elements to this. We, we need to show that we have the, the new approaches, the new solutions clearly articulated. That's one thing. The second thing is we need to show that we have got the people and skills and the support to deliver that from within the industry. And then the third and critical one is that we need to show that we've got sufficient public support to, to push this through. And that's what we think we need in order to to bring about a, a tipping point. And one thing that we've definitely got to work on more in, in, in the year ahead is building that bridge between uh, the professions and the general public, because it's, it's very difficult to expect the public to uh, kind of campaign or, or demand uh, solutions if they're not that familiar with the solutions. So we need to get better at communicating just how much the uh, built environment uh, professions could offer in terms of upgrading our existing buildings, in terms of rethinking the way we design our cities, rethinking the way that resources flow through our economies and so on. But I think with the, the unity you've got, because I think you're nearly up to a thousand members within in the UK, and the fact that you've got the this kind of cross-sector interest with you know Construction Declares launching um, a, few, a couple of months back, um, I think you're really well well placed. I guess it would have been difficult because of the speed of the groundswell, but to actually take the time, make sure 
that everyone's happy that you're having the right impacts and having a plan going forward is absolutely key. One question I have for you is in terms of if there are architects listening in to this podcast, what would you ask of, of them in terms of how they can best support the efforts of Architects Declare? Well, to, to, thanks for asking that. Um, quite a lot of it is, is about uh, trying to push for change within those individual companies. Uh, and it's also about collaborating and sharing knowledge. So we're going to be uh, um, putting more and more material onto the Architects Declare website. Uh, we're establishing working groups, one of which is going to be developing a practice guide. And, and we've asked for volunteers from uh, a lot of the signatories. Uh, so that's definitely a way they can help. Um, and one of the interesting things that came um, from the survey, uh, we asked for uh, opinions on a letter to government. We had drafted a, a letter to government and we wanted to know whether people thought it was about right or whatever and whether they actually wanted to add their name to it. And there were quite a lot of signatories who came back and said, well, we'd actually rather not put our name to it because we would like you to be more radical than we feel we can be. And well, I, yeah, and I do understand that because, you know, an established company has got, well, they've got certain clients and interests that they perhaps don't feel comfortable in offending by by being too radical. But at the same time, they recognize that we do really do need radical change. And so that's encouraged us to be a bit more robust in our tone with with government. And so we've we've set out um, a pretty demanding response to the answer we got from from government to our letter in which we've set out uh, some of the evidence for why this is urgent and just how much we as an industry can do. And we've again asked for a, a meeting with them so that we can discuss this directly. I think that's exciting. As, as, a, as a final couple of points, is there, is there any events coming up if people want to get more involved or things that are happening for architects to clear in the next couple of months? Yes, actually, there is. Uh, we're doing a joint event with Business Declares, and um, this is happening in the 6th of October. So this is a, a joint event uh, with Business Declares and Architects Declare, and it's, it's all online, um, and it's uh, starting at 1 o'clock on Tuesday, the 6th of October. So we can, uh, we'll be putting the details um, on our website and circulating it on social media. And uh, yeah, we'd be delighted if, if people join that. So this podcast uh, will come out just before then. So if you can, feel free to, to reach out and, and potentially join. But if you're listening to this after, I think it'd be great to, to kind of see what the outcomes were from that workshop. Sure. And then we're also planning to have another uh, big uh, gathering online again um, in November. So one year on from the event we had last year uh, to talk about uh, where we go next and, and how we can uh, work towards the next big milestone, which is the uh, COP26 climate change talks uh, taking place in the UK. Michael, I want to say thank you so much for your time today. And it's been amazing to explore what great work you're doing with Exploration Architecture and Architects Declare. If um, people want to find out more about your work and keep up to date with your, your newest initiatives and what's what's happening, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? 
Well, I um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and um, uh, Exploration has has a website www.exploration-architecture.com, and then uh, constructiondeclares.com is the overall. Uh, website for that, and that that includes all the different uh, countries. So, so those are probably the, the the best ways to to keep in touch. So perfect. Thank you so much. Excited about your new book as well, and thank you for taking your time to share your knowledge with us today. Well, it's been a pleasure, John, and and I've always been a big fan of Interface. Uh, genuinely, they've they've been industry leaders, and and Ray Anderson was an absolute hero, and I I I'll always remember. He, the way he came across in that film, The Corporation, um, which, which for those of you who haven't seen, is, is, is well worth a look. It tells the story of, of the modern corporation. And, and then in, in the last sort of half an hour or so of the film, it looks at what a future corporation could be. And Ray Anderson, the, the former CEO of um, the late Ray Anderson, former CEO of, of Interface, came across just brilliantly. You know, there was a, a real... Uh, kind of energy that came across and a kind of twinkle in his eye that he, he knew he was onto something and he, he'd, he'd found something that was bigger than himself and he'd committed his life to it. And um, I, you know, he, he was a, an absolute hero of, of the, the broader movement. Absolutely. I mean, I always kind of like this idea that somewhere, because um, Ray passed away in 2011, but this imaginary idea of a meeting between him and Greta Thunberg, because I think... <laughs> He would love what she's doing, holding the world to rights, but she would love his humility, honesty, and willingness to rethink what a corporation is. And hopefully between the two of them, they can inspire many business leaders um, and change makers to make the changes that need to happen. That was epic. Great there to hear from Michael on the power of biomimicry, the origins of architects declare, and the need to move toward a regenerative approach to design. But it's not enough to do less bad. We have to find ways to do more good. On the next episode, I'll be talking to explorer and broadcaster Paul Rhodes, a former vice president of the Royal Geographic Society, base commander for the British Antarctic Survey, and currently expedition leader for National Geographic's Pristine Seas Expeditions, We'll be exploring the role of adventure in inspiring a green recovery and what that could mean for the design community. Thank you for joining us on Designing with Climate in Mind. If you're enjoying the series, please subscribe or share or leave a rating on your podcast channel. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening. This podcast is powered by Interface. If you'd like to know more about our flooring products and sustainability journey, check us out at interface.com or on Instagram at interface. Thank you too to our producers, Tangerine.